Well, we're in 2 Kings chapter 10, 2 Kings chapter 10, and we'll read the chapter, even though we'll only cover about half of it today. 2 Kings 10, beginning at verse 1. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, and Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, the elders, and to the guardians of the children of Ahab, saying, Now when this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, as well as the chariots and the horses and a fortified city and the weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's sons and set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. But they feared greatly and said, Behold, The two kings did not stand before him. How then can we stand? And the one who was over the household, and he who was over the city, the elders and the guardians of the children, sent word to Jehu, saying, We are your servants. All that you say to us, we will do. We will not make any man king. Do what is good in your sight. Then he wrote a letter to them a second time, saying, If you are on my side and you will listen to my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow about this time. Now the king's sons, seventy persons, were the great men, excuse me, were the great, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. When the letter came to them, They took the king's sons and slaughtered them, seventy persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, Put them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. Now in the morning he went out and stood and said to all the people, You are innocent. Behold, I conspired against my master and killed him, but who killed all these? Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done what he spoke through his servant Elijah." So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, and all his great men, and his acquaintances, and his priests, until he left him without a survivor. Then he arose and departed and went to Samaria on the way while he was at Beth-Eked of the shepherds. Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah king of Judah and said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah, and we have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. He said, Take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the pit of Beth-Eked, forty-two men, and he left none of them. Now when he had departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart right, as my heart is with your heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. 
Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. And he gave him his hand, and he took him up into the chariot. And he said, Come with me, and see my zeal for the Lord. So he made him ride in his chariot. When he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria, until he had destroyed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. I think we'll stop there. There's plenty here in verses 1 through 17. Just as a reminder, last week we concluded chapter 9. In chapter 9, we began with the anointing of Jehu, the anointing of this man Jehu, who would be the avenger of God, the avenger of God. And that's our title, part 3, Jehu, the avenger of God. He was anointed and immediately he knew what to do and he went and killed Joram or Jehoram, king of Israel, Ahab's descendants, descendant. And then he immediately went and killed Jehu, excuse me, Ahaziah, king of Judah. So he killed the king of Israel and then he killed the king of Judah and then he went in the third episode, to kill Ahab's wife, who was Jezebel. Yes, he killed Jezebel in a violent death. What's not over yet, and it's the gruesomeness continues in chapter 10, we find Jehu continuing to execute God's justice upon the house of Ahab. He goes down to these 70 sons, he meets the uh, family of Ahaziah, king of Judah. And then the last part of this chapter speaks of how he destroys all the Baal worshippers and then a summary of his death and his son who will take the throne. And then chapter 11 will be about Athaliah, the queen of Judah. So we'll begin here in chapter 10, verse 1. Ahab had these 70 sons in Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria. And Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, but also he sent them to the other city, to the rulers of Jezreel, and then the elders, and to the guardians of the children of Ahab. And he said, when this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, as well as all this stuff. Did you catch that? The chariots, the horses, the city, and the weapons. That's key to understanding part of this. Select the best and fittest of your master's sons, the descendants of Ahab, these 70 sons, and put them on their father's throne and fight for them. And he gives them this test. He wants to know where their loyalties lie, or at least to extinguish his enemies. So we've got the two cities in scope, Samaria, the capital, and then Jezreel, where the palace was, um, where it all began when they stole Naboth's land and had him murdered, and that's a big reason this judgment is happening. Now, did Ahab have multiple wives, uh, these 70 sons or descendants, uh, grandsons, and even his his son, Jehoram, Uh, We read in chapter 1, verse 17, that Ahab had no sons. But then when we read the summary of his life, 
we read the phrase uh, Jehoram, the son of Ahab. So it's a little bit confusing. Are these literal sons or most likely the descendants, the nephews, the relatives, so-and-so's son? But they are the sons and the, the descendants. And as we read our story, it's all the people surrounding uh, Ahab's family. And here particularly, they had some relationship. Uh, however, in what way, we don't know. But it gives this number 70, maybe just the rounded up number, but a lot of sons or descendants. He gives them this test, put, the, put this son, the best of them, on the throne and fight for, them, fight for that son. He wants to have a fight or at least put them to the test. But they're petrified. Verse 4, but they feared greatly. They knew that this was a man of bloodshed, he was violent, and they surely thought, well, if we do anything, he'll kill us. And they add this phrase, behold, the two kings did not stand before him. And those two kings were Jehoram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah. So they they knew what happened, and they saw the bloodletting from Jehu, so they said, how can we stand? We have no hope. And that's what all these leaders, all these uh, folks, apparently in Samaria and Jezreel, as the letters went out, um, verse 5, they respond, one of them takes the lead, one who was over the household, and he who was over the city, another guy, another leader, the elders, it's bringing this list of people again, and the guardians of the children. They sent word to Jehu, they respond to his letters with their own letter, and apparently they all had their names on it or it came from them, saying, we are your servants. All that you say to us, we will do. We will not make any man king do what is good in your sight. They acquiesced to his authority out of fear. Uh, There was really no loyalty, as we'll see in a moment, among these people. Um, they did not want to be killed. They were petrified that Jehu would kill them as he did the other kings. We'll do whatever you say. You just tell us. Verse 6, he gives them a second test, if you will. He writes them a letter a second time saying, if you are on my side and you will listen to my voice, and he gives this horrific instruction, take the heads of the men your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow about this time. Now the king's son, again, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. Were they young men, teenagers in their 20s? We don't know. It caused them men, yet they were being reared and instructed in the way of uh, house politics, in the way of uh, kingship, maybe military direction, whatever the case, these leading men of the city were raising up these 70 sons for future usefulness. And Jehu says, give me their heads. Off with their heads. He is a bloody man. And he says, prove your fidelity to me by killing these heirs to the throne. And they didn't have to be actual sons. Uh, Ahaziah, king of Israel was not a son of Ahab, and he was king for about a year. And it even said, in, as we mentioned, chapter 1, that Joram or Jehoram was not an actual son. Again, so all these people, relatives, loosely or strictly, 
their heads were called for. And where were they called to send them? Did you catch it? At Jezreel. Jezreel is the key. That's the place where Jezebel and Ahab had Naboth murdered and stole his land. And that was where Jezebel, of course, died. And you'll see Jezreel brought up again and again. Now, he didn't just come and kill those 70. He tells them to kill. Why would he do that? Why would why wouldn't he just go in there with his army and say, give me your sons, and he cuts their heads off? I believe he directed them to do the killing so they would be involved and solidify his rule and they would be accountable uh, at least to God. And ultimately, they would execute the Lord's decree whether they really recognized it or not. But he would sort of bring them in, uh, those that would still be alive at the end of the day, to ensure that they were involved. They, he solidified his power uh, by telling them to kill these young men, um, which, is, which is grievous. Now, verse 7, when the letter came to them, they immediately obey. They took the king's sons and slaughtered them. These are the people that have been raising them, instructing them, And in a moment's notice, they have the king's sons and his descendants killed, maybe by their own hand. And they cut their heads off, 70 persons, and put them in baskets and sent them to him, to Jehu, at Jezreel. They promptly obeyed. And this episode is very similar to when Jezebel sent letters to the elders in Jezreel and told them, get two wicked men and and do such and such and basically frame Naboth so we can kill him. It's very similar, the parallels, these letters that went out, that was how they communicated. But in a similar way, Jezebel had sent letters to maybe the very same elders and they did it immediately. They didn't ask any questions. They had an innocent man and, and his sons murdered. Well, now it comes full circle Now these others are about to be killed partly by these same elders. Matthew Henry says, said, we can scarcely expect that he who had been false to his God should be faithful to his prince. They were unfaithful, wicked elders and leaders of the people. They were supposed to be rearing these young men to be the future leaders and they beheaded them. And they put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jezreel. Now, Samaria and Jezreel are about 25 miles apart. You can see that in in your map. So it's at least, by wagon or however they went, it's at least a day and a half's travel. But just keep that in mind between the capital and the palace city in Jezreel, 25 miles approximately apart. The Lord was accomplishing his wrath on the house of Ahab by the hand of Jehu and now by the hand of all these people. They were wicked indeed, yet accomplishing God's purpose. Lesson one of five is stand in awe. In awe. God himself is the righteous judge. These chapters are primarily about the judgment of God on the house of Israel 
for their idolatry, for their murder. God is judging them. We have these several chapters, and we mentioned it. It's really 20 chapters from the beginning of Ahab's life through his descendants until his house is wiped out. The Lord is the righteous judge. And it's it's black in one sense. It's dark. It's It's disturbing. Yet God is the righteous judge. Psalm 50, which is a lot about God's righteous judgment, though it may be delayed, says, And the heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. And there's a selah, a, a, a thunderclap, uh, cymbals crashing. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. God is a righteous judge. His judgment is terrible as we noted last time, on earth and in eternity. We have to know the character of God. Again, these might not be a favorite. Well, you know, We'd love to hear a message on such and such about God. You probably wouldn't ask Tom, John, or myself, hey, we'd like to hear some sermons on the judgment of God. But we have the Bible to reveal the character of God and His judgment is no less part of his character than his love or his faithfulness or his kindness. I was reminded of C.S. Lewis' description of Aslan when Lucy was speaking to Mr. Beaver. Some of you have have seen it, read it. And um, the question is, then he isn't safe, speaking of Aslan, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what... Mrs. Beaver tells you, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. And that's a beautiful description. And often we have focused, and I've even quoted this passage, focusing on the goodness of God, and yet the awesomeness of God. But here, just park for a moment and meditate on God as the righteous judge. You could think of Romans 1. You can think of other passages throughout the Bible in the Revelation, which we'll mention in a moment, about the righteous wrath of God. The judgment of God, which in this story we have a picture of God's righteous judgment, even at the hands of wicked people, to accomplish His purposes. We must know God, we must know Christ, as He is revealed in the Bible not a God of our own imagination. We want to have a balanced, biblical view of who God is, and God is a righteous judge. And we bow before Him, we worship Him in that regard. The passage continues, verse 8. When the messenger came and told him, that's Jehu, saying, they have brought the heads of the king's sons. He said, Put them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. We talk about how did the original recipients of these books, the Israelites, how did they receive it? What must they have felt? These were their relatives. Or even go back to the time and you knew some of those 70 sons. Now their heads are piled up in two heaps at the entrance of the gate to warn, to intimidate everyone, all who went in the gate or through the gate or by the gate would see this gruesome sight. 
It wasn't uncommon in times of battle and during coups, during uh, punishing your enemy to do this, to pile up the heads. It's gruesome. And remember, one thing that happened at these gates where that's where they, they were the place of judgment, where the wise men and the elders would sit and make judgment. Well, it's the appropriate place, not only uh, at the entrance so the passers-by would see it, but it was known as the place of judgment. Again, all of this, in one sense, points to the future of God's final judgment. It's a snapshot of what is to come in a real sense. Lesson two, generally, maybe a hermeneutical help. Beware of censoring or sanitizing the Bible. Beware of censoring or sanitizing the Bible. We may read the Bible with our children. We may have a children's Bible, and there's a place for that as they're learning to read and seeing some of those things. But we would never want to censor and say, don't read that, or, or skip over that, or don't preach that. I've been shocked even some of the commentators skip these sections. They didn't want to speak about them. And yet, this is what the Bible says and shows. It shows in a grotesque, bloody way the wrath of God. We cannot censor that. We cannot sanitize it. Rather, we receive it and believe it. We may not... It's not something we relish in, we delight in, we, we don't laugh at it. It's grievous, but we must believe it and receive it. And when you come across those types of passages in your Bible, wrestle over it, pray over it, meditate on it, but at the end, believe it. And we may say, Lord, that's a tough passage, but, but I believe it and I, I submit to you, I worship you, I, I fear you, Lord. Even the punishment of these 70 sons piled up in two heaps. It's in God's Word and it's part of God's work and His righteous judgment. Well, Jehu is done sending letters, but he speaks directly to them. Verse 9, Now in the morning, what a night of sleep that must have been or not been, he went out and stood and said to all the people gathered, You are innocent. The people that apparently brought the heads. You are innocent. Behold, I conspired against my master, Ahab's house, and killed him. But who killed all these? It's a very unusual question at such a time. They may have said, you told us to kill them? Why would he say this? But who killed all these? Well, first, let's remember, he, he says they're innocent or they're righteous. And he mentioned, uh, concluding who killed these, I think, again, he's roping them into the conspiracy. Yes, I conspired, but, but you actually did what I told you to do. Just like they did what Jezebel told them to do. They're, they're brought into the conspiracy and ultimately under his control. But he'll go on further to really show what's behind the curtain in verse 10 as this avenging king becomes a bit of a, a theologian, if you will. The Spirit of God is speaking through him to the people, ultimately to us. Behind all these killings, verse 10, what, what is it? Is it, is it Jehu, the, the bloodthirsty killer? 
Or is it all of these people that cared for the 70 sons? No. Verse 10, Jehu is speaking, Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he spoke or what he promised through his servant Elijah. What is behind all of this killing? The plan of God. Jehu is the avenger of God. But this description is is really profound. He's the warrior theologian, if you will. Did, Did you catch those words? Verse 10, this is really a great summary and a great centerpiece of, of this chapter and the section speaking about what or who is behind all of this. It is the Lord and His Word being fulfilled. So lesson three, know for certain that none of the Lord's words will ever fail. Know for certain that none of the Lord's words will ever fail. I remembered our study in Joshua. Very familiar words from Joshua twenty three fourteen, where Joshua said, Know in all your hearts and in your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All has been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. It's, it's a similar idea coming from a lesser man than Joshua, at least, out of the mouth of Jehu. But nothing of the word of the Lord that he spoke, and it was 12 years prior, remember? It had been a long time since God had said what he was going to do to the house of Ahab, 12 years approximately, yet no word of God would fail or will fail. That encourages encourages us, and here it is a word of judgment, a word of God's righteous wrath, but even broader, nothing that the Lord spoke, and that's the lesson of the prophets, thus says the Lord, and it came to pass. It may be 12 years, 50 years, 100 years, or thousands of years into the future, but God's word will come to pass. It will never fail. His word is settled in the heavens. Or Psalm 36, 5, your faithfulness reaches to the skies. It's out of sight. It's so far beyond it. He is so faithful. It's unending. It's an eternal faithfulness. And therefore, his word and his promises will ever, never fail, whether it's for judgment or blessing. All that he said will come to pass. Even as Jehu is telling the people, all the people gathered who had just killed the sons, it was the purpose of God. Applications, if you're, if you're not a believer, if you're not born from above, There's a judgment coming. These many judgments point to the greater judgment. Just like the the many salvations point to the salvation in Christ, these smaller judgments point to the eternal judgment. So run. Run from your sins. Repent and run to Christ and believe and be saved and be free from the wrath to come because God has promised that He will judge sinners. So you either have your sin dealt with on the cross or you'll have your sin dealt with in eternity. And if you think this is gruesome, this is nothing 
compared to eternity, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The righteous wrath of God. It's a theme even in the book of Romans, the righteous judgment of God. It's a theme in the whole Bible. We can't minimize it or or think less of it because it's not comfortable. It's God's just judgment. Believers, we receive by faith all that God has told us in His Word. Even Jehu can teach us that nothing of the Word of the Lord will fail. What God has told us in His Word is a sure thing. It's trustworthy. It gives us rest and peace. The world is tumultuous as it has been since the fall, but God has a purpose and a plan and He will never leave us or forsake us. He is with us. He is for us in Christ. We can take some of these themes of judgment and retribution and God avenging the blood of His people and think and look to eternity where ultimately that will all be wrapped up at the judgment seat of Christ. Just as the kings and the prophets and the priests pointed to Christ, these judgments also pointed to Christ, the cursings and the blessings. Remember 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Even His judgment. We'll continue verse 11. The bloodbath was not finished. So Jehu killed all who remained in the house of Ahab in Jezreel and all his great men and his acquaintances and his priests until he left him without a survivor. So it seems that he had all these people kill the descendants of Ahab and then he killed all of them. All the men, the servants, the warriors, the friends, the, the priests, more of that in a bit, the priest of Baal, everyone associated with Ahab living in Jezreel, there was nobody left. He killed them all. As they said in the army, everybody, Ladi Dadi. They were all killed. Remember, God said, Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. So the slaves, the servants, they weren't even in points of power, but yet God would judge them. Lesson 4 from Psalm 76.10 For the wrath of man shall praise you. With a remnant of wrath, you will gird yourself. That's a profound verse. And please go back today and read the context of Psalm 76, 5 through 12. It's all about judgment and speaking of Israel and God's warnings and how they should fear God and how God would use the wrath of others to punish his enemies. For the wrath of man shall praise you. These people... And Jehu, in particular, had wrath. Yet that was for God's praise, for God's glory. With a remnant of wrath, the leftovers of wrath, you will gird yourself, girding himself probably with his sword. Girding on his mighty sword or wrapping it around himself 
God used and uses the wrath of man for his own purposes. It's beyond finding out. But he's glorified on his throne. He uses and used the wrath of Jehu to accomplish his purposes against Ahab and his house. Again, we exalt the Lord as judge. When God sends his enemies to hell at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the saints cry, Hallelujah! They rejoice. That's hard to do. We're we're grieved, and yes, we should on the one hand grieve, but we exalt God as judge. We worship Him. He brought about great wrath on the house of Ahab, his own people, the Israelites, by the hand of Jehu, and one day he will destroy all his enemies by the wrath of the Lamb. Remember those people in Revelation 6? Hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb? That is a profound phrase. Jesus is the righteous judge. And one day, all of His enemies will feel His wrath. The wrath of Jehu glorified God, but how much more will the wrath of the Lamb? That's why we must run to the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sacrificed Himself, who gave Himself as the sacrifice for sinners. Otherwise, we are under the wrath of God right now. It's nothing to play with. And these stories warn us of the wrath of God upon His enemies, upon sin. And Hosea 1.4 adds something even more shocking. God said, I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. God will commend Jehu at the end of this chapter for killing the house of Ahab, but it seems Jehu went too far. Somehow he was accomplishing the purpose of God as other kings did, yet he would punish the house of Jehu. Again, God's ways are beyond finding out. Listen to Spurgeon. I had to open up Treasury of David after our men's meeting yesterday. Listen to Spurgeon on Psalm 76.10. He said, Furious winds often drive vessels the more swiftly into port. The devil blows the fire and melts the iron, and then the Lord fashions it for his own purposes. Those furious winds that seem to be out of control are are actually helping that ship to get into port. In the same way, in the same sense, this man, Jehu, who's, who's, who's good and bad, he is accomplishing the purpose of God. These wicked people that gave up the children, the children they had raised into sons, they were only being used by God to accomplish His purposes. Verse 12, finally, Jehu departed from Israel, but not for peace. Verse 12, then he arose and departed and went to Samaria. Now remember, he was in Jezreel. That's where all this happened. People had sent the heads of the sons from Samaria and right there in Jezreel. Now he went to Samaria on the way while he was at Beth-Eked of the shepherds, 
He's traveling to the from the palace in Jezreel to the capital of Samaria. Verse 13, randomly, right? We've seen that before. Not randomly. Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah, and we have come down to greet the sons of the king of Jehoram. Maybe they didn't know he was dead. And the sons of the queen mother, maybe Athaliah. It's hard to know here what's going on. It seems to me that these people, the relatives of Ahaziah, they didn't know that uh, Jehu had recently killed Joram and Ahaziah. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been speaking in such a calm fashion. Some think they were coming to pay their condolences. I don't think they knew. And remember, Ahaziah was, was wicked and walked in the ways of Ahab. Maybe these people did too. We don't have details about them but they were his relatives. Again, the king of Judah, Ahaziah. Providentially, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Verse 14, he said to them, excuse me, he said, take them alive to his fellow soldiers. So they took them alive and killed them at the pit of Beth-Eked. Forty-two men, and he left none of them. Why would he take them alive and then immediately kill them? I don't know. Maybe it was to show those people at this pit at Beth-Eked what happens to those who follow in the paths of Ahab. Or he was merely bloodthirsty. But when you read about Ahaziah, the king, the the the, the relatives of Ahaziah, the people that are killed here, Ahaziah was very wicked and, and the destruction of God came upon Ahaziah and maybe that was his family too, that God had a plan to punish them. You can read Second Chronicles 22, 3 and 4 that show how wicked Ahaziah was and how he led the people in wickedness and he followed the, the, counselor, uh, the counselors of his father and his mother, surely. But his relatives, who are coming down to visit him, are killed. And later, actually, in Second Chronicles 22, it mentions, it came about when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab, he found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers ministering to Ahaziah before Ahaziah was killed, and he slew them. So he was killing the Israelites and the Judeans right and left, rooting out the sins of Ahab between the two, the two tribes, the two kingdoms, north and south, Israel and Judah. And the summary is, now the destruction of Ahaziah and maybe his people was from God. Ultimately, that's what happened. Did you catch the number? How many died? Forty-two men. It's interesting, the Bible numbers. Do you remember, by chance, another 42 in, in the book of Kings, Second Kings? It was 42 lads that were ripped up as Elisha went up to um, Bethel. There's more to, to chew on and think about with these numbers. And the same with the 70, as a matter of fact. But 42, it's the same number. Um, I don't know the parallel, but 42 men were killed. Again, the bloodletting 
continued. A new section starts in verse 15 after he killed those relatives of Ahaziah. Verse 15, Now, when he had departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart right? As my heart is with your heart. And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. And he gave him his hand, and he took him up into the chariot. Now, we don't know a lot about this man, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, but we do know that he was coming to meet, or maybe to find, Jehu. Now, you can read in Jeremiah 35 about the sons of Jehonadab, the Rechabites, who seemed to have this John the Baptist type of existence. They were in the desert and they lived a very strict life and they didn't drink alcohol and they were, they seemed to be a group and, and, and the lineage of people that wanted purity in Israel. So it would make sense in light of that that this man, Jehonadab, is coming to meet Jehu. He heard about what was going on and he wants to it seems, maybe join in. And and uh, Jehu challenges him, and then he invites him up to his chariot. Just to quote one verse from Jeremiah 35, 19 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me always. So he was a good man and had good lineage, and he trained his family for generations. That was a few hundred years later than this. Jehonadab was long gone, but God had respect and would bless this Jonadab or Jehonadab and his children because of their good legacy. But he's coming to meet Jehu, and Jehu says, Come with me, verse 16, and see my zeal for the Lord. So he made him ride in his chariot. Jehu was self-aware, maybe you could say in modern parlance, that he was on a mission for the Lord. He was zealous for the Lord. Some see this as a bit of braggadociousness. He's bragging. Um, Whatever the case, he'll be commended for it to a degree, his zeal for the Lord, to do the Lord's will and obliterate the house of Ahab, the line and legacy of Ahab, And he wants to show Jehonadab this zeal so he gets him up into his chariot. So he's becoming partners to a degree with Jehonadab and and he'll be there when Jehu slays all the the Baal worshippers. So there's something there. Did Jehu have godly zeal? Yes and no. I mean, you can just turn over and we'll, we'll hit it hopefully next time. The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that is that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. He's commended. But then immediately, verse 30 says, But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord. So, yes, he was zealous for the Lord, but he he wasn't zealous enough. 
at least, and he needed his own repentance. He needed to be zealous not only in killing the Lord's enemies, but in repenting of his sins. You can think about that character. And thinking of another zealous character, a much better one, you could read Numbers 25 about Phineas, who was jealous with God's jealousy in a, in a similar situation where Israel was worshiping uh, Baal Peor. At Baal Peor, the, they, they worship Baal, and then that Midianite came up with the Israelite, and Phineas checked the plague by being zealous. You can review that later. It would be a good message someday for us. Verse 17. Finishing up here, our last verse. When he came to Samaria, that's Jehu, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria until he destroyed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. He killed everyone in Jezreel. Now he kills everyone in Samaria. Actually, it says, until he destroyed him. Ahab, or he annihilated his house. He made his house desolate because of what he did with Naboth at Jezreel and all the idolatry that he brought in to Israel through his wife Jezebel. That punishment all happened. Again, our theme, or the theological theme of of these chapters, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. It was all according to God's word. The massacres that we read of happened ten years after God promised it and he executed his righteous word and judgment on his enemies. Lesson five in the last place. Be assured the word of the Lord is upright. Or we could say the judgment of the Lord is upright. Psalm 33, 4. The word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. His work is straight. His work is just. His work is right. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Psalm 119, there's a lot there about the word and the promise of God being upright. We must worship Him and praise Him because His judgment was and is and will be upright. Trust Him one day to punish all His enemies. And we will cry with the saints in heaven, Hallelujah! The Lord's judgment and His word is upright. He does it in righteousness. He executes judgment perfectly with balance, with justice, with righteousness. May God exalt Himself before our eyes, even in His judgment, even in His wrath, even as He used wicked people to accomplish His will. Let's pray. Our great God, we are humbled and we desire to exalt you, to praise you, Lord, because your judgment is upright. Your word is upright. You accomplish all that you determine to accomplish through whatever means you choose to use. Lord, we thank you that you avenge the blood of Naboth and his sons. And Lord, you are jealous for your own glory. You demand to be worshipped. And Father, we delight to worship you and we desire to worship you and to know you as you're revealed in the scripture. To know Christ as he's revealed in the scripture. The lamb who has wrath 
Yet the Lamb who is gracious and merciful and receives sinners. We come to Him afresh and we thank You, Lord Jesus, for bearing the wrath, propitiating the righteous and just and upright wrath of the Father. Lord, may every soul here today run to You for salvation, to hide in the shadow of Your gracious wings and to be washed in the blood of the Lamb so that they would not experience Your wrath. We thank you that the cross soaked up, the cross of Christ soaked up your wrath for all who believe. We rejoice in the atonement, even as we reflect on Second Kings. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.